Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. Hello, welcome along. I hope you're ready for your mind to be blown because it's a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan. Thank you for being there. It's the time of the week where we have a search, a scour around the solar system to see what incredible science is lurking there. Uh, Some brilliant news to start the show. The entry for this year's Best Podcast in the Universe Award is on its way. We've beamed it up. It's currently travelling to Neptune, where it's being judged this year. We said it a couple of days ago, so I reckon it's just past Jupiter. So keep your fingers crossed, and I will let you know more when I hear it. Now, this week, uh, we've got a bona fide hero on the show, uh, a friend of the podcast, a legend who knows more about the world and its strange creatures than most others. Steve Backshall joins us. He's on to talk about his newest journey around one of the most unique places ever, the Galapagos. To sea lions battling with each other on the shores and Galapagos sharks coming in to try and catch their pups as they wander too close to the edge, you'll have marine iguanas, one of the very few lizards that will enter the sea at all, heading into the sea every day into crashing spray. Also, Amy's Aviation is back, talking about how things fly. This week, it's all about how wooden planes can stay in the air. I know what you're thinking. Camel? That's a really silly name for a plane. (laughs) But it was just because there were two bumps on the back covering its machine guns, it looked a bit like a camel. And I've got your questions, as always, this week. They are on black holes and tickling. Should be a funny one. It's a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's start with your science in the news. NASA's Perseverance rover, currently roaming around Mars, is close to finishing its first set of missions up there. It's collected a huge range of rocks and it will soon leave them in a pile on the surface, which will wait for later space robots to come and pick up. Uh, Everything it's picked up so far shows scientists that it's the perfect place that life could have lived in the past which is brilliant news we've been searching for other places in the universe that could house life could have kept life way back because maybe there's a chance that that needs to happen in the future and although we need to do our best to help this planet we're on it's always good to know there are other places that humans might be able to live Also, more than 200 whales have been found stranded on a beach in Tasmania, which is off the coast of Australia. Uh, It's a shallow area, and experts don't know what drew the whales there, but they're stuck on the sand. It's really sad. They can't get out. And there's now a huge rescue mission underway to get them back in the water before too many are lost. Now, sadly, some of these whales have lost their lives because they can't spend that long on the sand. And it's just so sad 
and strange to hear why they've decided to come onto the sand and the fact we can't save them all. And finally, Typhoon Nanmadol has been battering Japan over the last week. Over 100,000 homes are without electricity. Many places are flooded too. It brought winds of 145 miles an hour to land, destroying many homes and shops. Now, interestingly, this is natural. Scientists have predicted an active hurricane season this year. It's part of a phenomenon called La Nina, which is where warm surface temperatures in the Atlantic and the Caribbean uh, impact how many hurricanes there are. Uh, It's strange, isn't it, that warm temperatures in one side of the world can massively affect something on the other side of the planet. And what is really hard to hear is that uh, this is more frequent now. It's a lot more because of climate change, which shows that the decisions we make, what we do, can affect people all the way around the world. Let's get to your questions then. I love this part of the show. If there is something sciencey you want answered on this show, you need to send it to me. There's a couple of ways that you can do that. Um, Lucy has got in touch by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Lucy wants to know, why when other people tickle us do we laugh, but when we tickle ourselves, nothing really happens? Well, scientists think, Lucy, that being tickled is an evolutionary response, something that we've learned over hundreds and thousands of years to make us panic. It's an instinctive reaction against little bugs that might be dangerous to us. If you've got a creepy crawly on your skin, maybe it might bite you, maybe it might uh, poison you. So your body becomes very aware of what might be around, so that's why you feel a bit ticklish. Now, when we do it ourselves, though, we've taken away that panic, haven't we? There's not that element of surprise because your brain is aware that you're doing it. So you're not really worried that it might be something out to get you, Lucy. uh, Experts are still a bit unsure about this, but that's why they think we can't really tickle ourselves. Uh, Also, you can leave a question and you can pretty much be a star of the podcast by recording it as a voice note. And then sending it in on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. And Evangelos has done just that. Hi there. My name is Evangelos. I'm nine years old. And my question is, how are black holes made? Bye. Thank you very much, Evangelos. It's brilliant to hear from you, mate. Uh, here's what scientists think happen. When a star dies, it will collapse in on itself sometimes. It almost swallows itself. Because there's a lot of matter in a star, there's a lot of gravity there. When it gets sucked inwards, the gravity becomes so strong that it like warps space-time all around it. And everything gets sucked into it because it can't escape the gravity. It gets sucked into this black hole and pretty much becomes nothing. It's called a black hole because not even light can escape it, so it's pitch black, it's completely dark. If an atom does go into it, it gets shrunk down into something so small it becomes a speck, it's called a singularity. It's like a noodle, like a shoelace. And that's why experts think black holes happen, Evangelist. Thank you for the question. If you have got something you would like answered next week on the show, uh, record it for us and send it as a voice note uh, on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. I'd love to hear from you. Let's check in with Professor Hallux now. He's one of our favourite geniuses on the show. Uh, He's a medical expert. He knows everything that's happening with your body. Over the last few months, we've heard series about what your teeth, your tongues, your gums, your hearts, lungs, arms, legs. This time, it's all about water. We're on his hydration help desk. And it's all about remembering that whilst drinking water at any time of the day is a brilliant thing to do, your body might be able to do more with water at different points in the day. 
So this week, Halux is letting us know some of the best times that you can hydrate. Halux's hydration help desk. Call accepted. Hello, Professor. If water's meant to be good for you, exactly how much water should I be drinking? Oh, good question. Nanobot, can you help? Well, a 10-year-old child needs around two litres of water every day to replenish what is lost through micturition defecation, exhalation and perspiration. Or to put it in much simpler terms, you need about one big bottle's worth of water to replace what you lose by going to the loo, breathing out and sweating. That's what I said. Now, all that water doesn't have to come from drinking. One quarter of that two-litre target tends to come from food. There's lots of foods which contain water, from juicy fruits like watermelon that are over 90% made up of the stuff, to foods like eggs, meat and cheese, which all contain some water. But on their own, food just isn't enough. You still need to drink. Scientists say children between four and eight years old need to drink four to six glasses of water every day. And children between nine and 12 should drink six to eight glasses. Each glass should be between 150 and 200 millilitres. If you look on the side of your school water bottle, there might be a measuring scale which shows you how much that is. If it's not, it's about half a regular mug. That's right, nurse. There may be times, though, when you need to drink more than six to eight glasses of water, like if it's a very hot day and you've been running about. You'll be losing a lot more water every hour. Similarly, if you've had an upset stomach, you'll have lost more water than usual when you go to the toilet. Eating certain foods, especially salty ones, can dehydrate you more than usual. Don't worry, though. Your body will often give you signs that you need a top-up. But generally speaking, you don't need to drink more than the guidelines suggest. You'll only spend all your time weighing it out again. And if I did that, I'd have less time for inventing. So stick to four to six glasses if you're under eight and six to eight if you're older. Pretty simple, huh? Halex's Hydration Help Desk with support from the Children's Health Fund. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash Halex. Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. It's time for this week's Dangerous Dan there, where we look at some of the most mean and wicked things in the universe. This time, we're learning about an animal that has been kind of viewed strangely for ages. Let's hear about the rat, shall we? Now, rats can look sweet, you know, a bit like a mouse. They've got long tails, small round ears. There are 56 known species of rats in the world, and they're found all over the place. They've got 16 teeth. Now, they're four in the front, the incisors never stop growing. They grow and grow and grow. They can even cut through their own mouths. To stop them getting too long, they have to keep gnawing uh, on things like wood just to wear them down. And their teeth are extremely tough too. Now, there's something called the Mohs scale, which ranks how hard things are. And get this, rat's teeth come out at 5.5 on that scale, um, which is even tougher than iron. 
their bite is just as strong. They can press 6,000 pounds of force per square inch, which means it's stronger than a crocodile and a hippo's bite. Uh, Good job they're not as big, right? They spread something around called rat bite fever as well, which is as bad as it sounds. It can make you extremely sick. Now, many experts think rats helped spread the plague, which sadly killed thousands of people around the world in the Middle Ages. Uh, Their powers are extraordinary too. They can swim for days without drowning. They can fall a long way without being hurt. They are quick, nimble. They can slip through tiny holes. And that is why the rat goes straight on to our Dangerous Dan list. Now, we have a huge hero. A massive friend of the show, the podcast, is with us this week because he's got a brand new book out about one of the most mysterious places on Earth. It's called Galapagos. Steve Backshaw, thank you so much for being there. Hey, hello. And my, my kids are going to be so, so chuffed that I'm on Fun Kids because they love it. <laughs> well, that's really good. I'm, I'm excited that we're we're joining you in the car as no doubt you, you travel up a strange Scottish tour or something. So I'm very excited <laughs> to have you here. Um, so the Galapagos Islands, we know, are quite a mystery. Like they're a place that humans can't really go. Just... Give us a bit of a background of what they are, where they are, and who is allowed there. So the Galapagos, you, you can go to the Galapagos. I, I went there with my parents many, many years ago, and there are lots of places that we are allowed to go to as tourists and that are some of the most exciting places on the planet for, for wildlife spotting. But perhaps more excitingly, there are still lots of places that are off limits to us and only available either for the animals or for a very select few scientists that study them. And that's really important because animals existing without our interference are, are doing so in a completely natural way. And so to study them, you're, you're learning about them as they have always been, as they've been for millennia before we turned up. And, and what type of creatures would we find there that have been allowed to to blossom in some untouched lands as it's been for thousands of years? So the Galapagos is known as a laboratory of evolution. Famously, Charles Darwin on his early adventures uh, toured around the Galapagos and found so much that led him to his great idea, potentially the greatest idea ever, I would say in science, but people would definitely say in biology. And it's the, the one thing that makes sense of everything else. Uh, The reason that the Galapagos was the place that he came to those ideas is because you have these volcanic islands, some of them are comparatively new, and they're separated from the other islands. The animals that live there have developed to adapt to the very specific challenges that each one of those islands have. And going around the islands, you'll see everything from pink flamingos striding through lagoons to sea lions battling with each other on the shores and Galapagos sharks coming in to try and catch their pups as they wander too close to the edge. You'll have marine iguanas, one of the very few lizards that will enter the sea at all, heading into the sea every day into crashing spray in order to head down to the bottom of the sea and and eat algae off the volcanic rocks there. Marine iguanas, which, uh, sorry, land iguanas, which in some places are unique to the particular island they live on and are found nowhere else on the planet. And alongside that, it's an incredibly important place for seabirds to come to to breed. And at the right time of year, you'll have wandering albatross standing alongside frigate birds and tropic birds and blue footed boobies and red footed boobies and all these incredibly exotic sea creatures which make the Galapagos their home. 
Now, you've got this brand new book out all about the Galapagos. Uh, just tell us how you managed to uh, capture these incredible islands, that this one-off spot in nature in a book that we can read and look at. It's tricky. You know, there have been entire entire series made about the wildlife of the Galapagos. It's It's so immense in its scope. The, the writing of it was very much a, a case of editing down and just focusing on the highlights. Now, if you're listening to this, uh, you might not be aware that Steve started his career with one of the most amazing job titles in the history of the universe. Seriously, you were, for National Geographic, the adventurer in residence. Um, <laughs> what did the, what was on the job description? What did you have to do? How did you know what you were doing every day? Well, I, I was pretty much making it up as I went along. I, I was the first adventurer in residence that National Geographic had. And it, it was just a case of going out on expeditions, which I would organize myself, research myself, and then film myself and make television programs out of what I saw and what I found. And now you've been on so many TV shows and we know you as being very fearless on, on Deadly 60 and looking into the eyes of all these devastating creatures. Has there ever been a moment where you've found a creature and you've thought, oh, hang on, I might be in a bit of hot water here? You know, like that maybe your heart's going 10 to the dozen and you're thinking, I think this might be a bit too much for me. Yeah, there's been there's been a few. There have been a few. Uh, not as many as people might think, considering that I've been doing this for, you know, since 1998, nonstop. And all of the animals that I work with are crocodiles, snakes, sharks, you know, the kind of things people expect will be trying to eat you every second. And I've not been eaten yet. Um, but there have been a few. Uh, quite often it's hippos. Hippos are um, really devious animals. They're grumpy, they're unpredictable, they're territorial, um, and just plain frightening to work with. Um, but also, I have to say, diving with crocodiles has has always been quite quite spooky. I had one particular experience where we'd spent, I think we spent 10 days diving the Okavanga Delta in, uh, in, in Botswana, Africa, with crocodiles and they all completely ignored us until we had this one huge male crocodile that just came straight for us underwater and um i, I think we were just we were just lucky just plain lucky that we managed to get away with it because uh, uh, it was it was really close what about the opposite of that then you, you meet so many creatures that as you say many of us think oh, i don't want to see a crocodile or a you know a, a snake or a huge lion have you ever gone to see a creature that you're expecting to be just like devastatingly mean but actually it turns out they're a big pussycat for, for me the the best possible animal to work with is is a shark because sharks people people think of sharks as being absolutely terrifying and the second you're in the water with them you're going to get munched and, and it, that's just not true sharks are, are really really adept they've evolved for hundreds of millions of years to know exactly what's food in the water and what isn't they will they will swim around you to get to food that's behind you they will they will avoid you if they if they possibly can and you know you've got this great big scary looking animal because i mean I've, I've dived alongside great whites outside the cage bull sharks tigers great hammerheads you know all these you know really terrifying looking sharks and they will they will ignore you completely, um, which gives you a fantastic opportunity to film them. And at the same time, everyone back home is going, oh, he's about to get munched. <laughs> You've been all around the world. Where is the location that just always 
captures your mind? You always find yourself wanting to go back there. Um, I mean, I, I would say that the, the kind of destinations that capture my imagination the most would probably be the, the Arctic and the Antarctic and the high mountains, particularly the Himalayas. You're talking about travel there. At the moment, we are quite rightly concerned about the environment and our impact on the environment. Maybe flying all around the world isn't always the best thing to do for our carbon footprint. Uh, how much does that affect what you're doing with your family and where you're taking them and what strange places you might allow them to see? Well, it, it dominates our job. You know, Obviously, the people who are working in wildlife television are incredibly... It, it, you know, we, we, we are just totally focused on doing things that are positive for the environment. And if we were to continue just traveling all over the world, flying the whole time in the way that we used to 20 years ago, then that would be a very negative thing. So what we started doing, uh, first of all, is picking up most of our crews in country in the places we're going to. So my, my next trip, I'm heading uh, to Tahiti to try and uh, free dive with humpback whales. Well, I'm meeting all my crew there. They're all locals. None of them are traveling anywhere. Um, and, and that, you know, obviously means that the only person with a carbon footprint on that is going to be me. And on our cruise, we have every single thing that we do from the, the computers and the lights back home in the office in Bristol, all the way through to our air miles and the food we consume. We, we rank it up. And we offset it and we offset it properly. There's lots of different kinds of offsets. Ours are in purchasing uh, tropical rainforest and protecting it. And in, in so doing, I, I feel that we are having a net positive effect on the environment and on our climate. And likewise with my family, you know, I've just spent the last couple of years building a house that I'm sat in right now, which is is not just carbon neutral, but is actually going to be feeding energy back into the grid. We have um, the entire roof is tiled in solar panels. We have a, a heat exchanger in the river. We're triple glazed. We have the most expensive insulation known to humanity. And the house itself is generating power. And I cycle everywhere. I do everything I can to be the most green conscious person possible. And so when it comes to holidays with the family, we holiday here in the UK. But that really works for me as well, because I've spent most of my life traveling. And to be honest, the last thing I want to do is to head through an airport if I can avoid it. The brand new book is Galapagos. Steve Baxhaw, thank you so much. It's been an absolute treat. You're so welcome. Really nice to speak to you again. It's time to check in with Amy's Aviation then. We started this series last week. Amy is an aeroplane uh, expert. She knows everything about how planes stay in the sky. Now, this week, we're learning how bits of planes can be made by wood and how over a century ago, that's how all planes were made. Amy's Aviation, with support from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Right, you've seen, like, massive trains and ginormous lorries on the roads, haven't you? They thunder along, taking tons and tons of stuff around the country. You might think they've got lots in common with aircraft. They're big and heavy and move stuff about, right? Mm, not quite. One of the things I love about planes is that they have to be powerful, just like trains and lorries, but they're even more clever because for the same power, they can't be as heavy. If they were, they'd never get off the ground. <laughs> These days we have super space-age materials that are tough and light. 
Your mum's car might have super light carbon fibre in it. And even your trousers might have Teflon coatings. But can you imagine what it was like for those people experimenting with planes over a century ago? They didn't have all those fancy materials to work with. Iron and steel might have been perfect for building strong steam trains. But they were just too heavy for aircraft. The main problem was that the engines in the earliest planes weren't very powerful. So every extra pound of weight would make a big difference to whether the craft would be able to get in the air at all. So what was the lightest but toughest material they could find? Can you guess? Wood! There's always been plenty of wood about. It's pretty light and it's easy to build and repair. That's certainly what the Wright brothers found. They were famous inventors who experimented with the very first aircraft to take to the sky back in the early 1900s. In 1903, the brothers built the powered Wright Flyer 1 using their favourite wood, spruce. Because it's strong and lightweight, it's perfect for the job. They also used muslin, a type of cotton for surface coverings. The brothers had to start from scratch with everything, even designing and carving their own wooden propellers. Even with all their efforts to keep it small and light, its wings were 40 feet long and it weighed as much as a modern car. When it finally took to the air in December that year, it reached an amazing 27 miles an hour. Which isn't that fast, really, if you're used to cars and buses. But it was pretty impressive for a first flight. Over the next decade, more and more aircraft began to appear in the skies. One of the most famous wood frame planes was this one. It's called the Sopwith Camel. I know what you're thinking. Camel? That's a really silly name for a plane. <laughs> but it was just because there were two bumps on the back covering its machine guns, it looked a bit like a camel. Well, sort of. It was built in 1917 and was one of the most famous planes of the First World War. Before the First World War, you wouldn't find many planes in the skies. So if you were going to attack the enemy, you'd have to find another way. On foot or horseback, probably. During the war, aircraft were used in combat and the Sopwith was one of the most fearsome planes of the day. It's a biplane. That means it has two wings, one on top of the other, with wires bracing them together. The parts that look like little fins on the wings are called ailerons. The bit that the pilot sits in is called the fuselage. It has a rounded top and was built of wood with some fabric and aluminium. The length of the fuselage was just seven feet long. That's probably only a bit longer than your bed. This helped make it really fast and agile and in the right hands could outmaneuver the enemy every time. It won more air battles than any other Allied aircraft during the war, destroying 1,294 enemy aircraft. But just like a real camel, the Sopwood camel could turn and bite you. Sadly, over 300 pilots were killed because it often spun out of control. Once the war was over, engineers were able to learn loads from the pilots about how to make aircraft safer. Pretty amazing for a load of old wood. There's my lift. Looks like it's time for me to fly. Chocks away. Amy's Aviation, with support from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Find out more about aviation at funkinslive.com forward slash aviation. And 
that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. If you've got a question that you want answered, leave it as a voice note. Record yourself on your phone. You can borrow your mum or dad's. That's fine if you ask first. Send it over to us on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. You've heard some brilliant series today from Halleck's and Amy's Aviation. We've got tons more for you on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your shows, on that free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen to us all over the country on your DAB digital radio and on the free Fun Kids app. Thank you very much for listening to this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Um, We will be back next week with a brand new show exploring more strange corners of the solar system. I'll see you then. Bye. Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!